welcome to the really useful podcast this is the tech podcast for technophobes now this week we're doing something a little bit different it's been two and a half years since we launched the really useful podcast 30 months and in that time we've brought you a massive selection of tips and tricks to help you make the best use out of the tech that you own websites that you use and learn a bit more about how technology can be maximized and easier to use so rather than wasting time struggling to get to grips with something you tune in to us we give you what you need to know and off you go without wasting half your life trying to work out how to do things so to celebrate that i've selected five of our best tips from our top rated podcast episodes over the past 30 months. So coming up in this week's really useful podcast, we're going to be looking at the best keyboard shortcuts you're not using, the best classic PC games you could be playing, Skype, Office alternatives for Mac OS, and what is a Raspberry Pi? Joining me for these clips are my really useful podcast colleagues, Ben Stegner, Gavin Phillips, James Frew, and Ian Buckley. To get this week's best of the really useful podcast kickstarted, I'm going to be talking to Ben Stegner about the best keyboard shortcuts you're not using. Yeah, and you've compiled a list, haven't you, Ben, of um, various unfortunate keyboard shortcuts. Yeah, yeah. So there are about there's probably more than this, but I compiled ten really popular ones. Um, as Christian mentioned, one of the really popular ones is that um, most computers that use integrated graphics, like a laptop, the Control Alt arrow keys will completely rotate the screen. Um, I guess this could be useful in some cases, but if you have like a, a tablet or a, a, a flippable display, but in most cases it's just super confusing and it freaks people out. So. Uh, there are a ton of actually there are a lot of shortcuts like that that are really useful in a specific context. But if you activate them by accident, you're you think that, you know, something's going on or, you know, you have a virus or something like that. Um, one of the one of the most popular ones I see people have a problem with is the sticky keys in Windows. So if you hit the shift button uh, five times a little window pops up and asks you if you want to turn sticky keys on. And if you turn it on, which you might do by accident, um, sticky keys is designed for people that can't use a keyboard normally. So it lets you do a combination. So for example, to press control, alt, delete, you can press control and let go, press, press alt and let go, and then press delete like all one at a time. And it'll, it'll still work. Well, with sticky keys, it like beeps every time you press a key. So if you turn it on accidentally and don't realize it, your keyboard is acting crazy and it's beeping every time you press control or shift or something. So it's really confusing uh, for people that don't realize what that is. Um, but there are a lot of them. I, I would there. It's a lot to, to describe, of course. So I would recommend checking out the, the linked article for some more info on them. But if it ever seems like something is just totally screwed up, um, definitely keep an eye out for those because they're easy to hit. And actually, it ties in nicely to... There are three lock keys on an average keyboard, right? There's numlock, caps lock, and scroll lock. Mm -hmm. Scroll lock is pretty much not used in any modern software except for Microsoft Excel. So if you've turned scroll lock on accidentally, you probably would never notice because nothing uses it really. Except for Excel, it makes the it makes your arrow keys in Excel 
scroll the entire spreadsheet instead of moving what cell you've selected. So fun fact, if you never knew what scroll walk did, that's that's a one of the only examples I know in modern software. I'm just looking on my keyboard now. I use a Asus um, gaming laptop and it doesn't I don't think it has a scroll lock. Really? I have I have a a uh, Cooler Master keyboard, which I guess you could say is a gaming keyboard. It's a mechanical one, and it has a scroll lock. I, I think it just depends, because I know some. I mean, like I mean, we've seen Chromebooks don't have a caps lock key, right? They just have the search key. So mm. I guess it's up to the manufacturer. I really don't think you're going to lose anything by getting rid of scroll lock, and no. certainly on a gaming laptop. I mean, you're not. It's you know the people that are going to be buying that aren't probably going to be using excel or whatever so it makes sense but it is interesting yeah yeah i've got number lock and i've got caps lock but no i don't don't have a scroll lock huh i don't know if i've ever seen a computer without one no unless they've just forgotten to label it but now i've got delete insert pause break print screen assist request home and end uh on the number pad which is very close to the main keyboard no no sign of scroll scroll lock wow fascinating fascinating (laughs) Well, the things you learn on the really useful podcast. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, it's a good read that. Um, and uh, yeah, I agree about the lock things and the cap, the caps lock can and the scroll lock and the number lock can cause all manner of chaos. But in most cases, uh, there is a light to tell you that they're on. So uh, that's true. And I also found when I was when I was checking this out is that some some websites will tell you if caps lock is on. Yeah. Um, and also some browsers will. So I didn't know Chrome didn't do it for me. Um, but when I was using Microsoft Edge just to test, um, when I when I hit hit caps lock before typing my password, it pops up and tells you that it's on. Which of course, if you have it on, it's going to mess your whole password up. So if you ever if you ever keep typing your password on a website and it keeps saying it's wrong and you're sure that you're typing it correctly, it just could be something as simple that caps lock is on. Moving on now, I'm joined by. Gavin Phillips, and he's going to be talking to me about the key office alternatives for macOS. To this effect, we've never really spoken about macOS. That's rude of us. Isn't it just? Um, no. <laughs> uh, so if, if you do use a Mac, and are you thinking about switching to using a MacBook or, or an iMac or any Apple PC, and you're concerned about Microsoft Office. There are various alternatives that you can use. The key one is Google Suite because you know you can use that on any computer, really. Uh, it's a cloud-based word processor. You could use LibreOffice, which is open source uh, word processor Office Suite. Or you could use Apple's iWork Suite, which is, from memory, it's very good and in places better than Microsoft Office and other places not quite as good as Microsoft Office. Have you ever owned a Mac, Gavin? Uh, well, the Hackintosh count? Cause yeah, yeah I've, that counts, yeah. I've hacked together a few of those in my time. Uh, I've mm. never had uh, I've never had Apple uh, an Apple laptop or desktop hardware, but yeah, I've, I've cobbled together Hackintoshes uh, and used bits of Mac uh software uh i iWork's good if i remember rightly i haven't used it for a few years but i remember being quite impressed with it as yeah, a yeah. very long-term microsoft office user i was i was impressed yeah sure same here about 10 years ago i had an imac which was one of the pre-intel devices mm. uh, so it used, it used the old chipset 
so this was before the days where you could install Windows on an iMac, basically, listener. And uh, yeah, I had a lot of fun with it. Unfortunately, it uh, had a bit of a hardware issue, so uh, it didn't last as long as I would have liked it to. Sadly, it was uh, one of those hardware issues that uh, Apple PCs were kind of known for before they switched to Intel. Mm. And if you had it for too long and it didn't have that issue, then you weren't really eligible for a replacement. So a bit of a shame. Uh, Office Online, if you are absolutely bedded into the uh, Microsoft Office environment, then you can access Office Online. And you can also edit Office documents in Dropbox on any uh, Dropbox supporting platform. So, yeah, there are plenty of options for Microsoft Office alternatives on Mac OS. I, I think, you know, the thing with moving platforms is there is always going to be, unless you're moving to Linux, I suppose, there is always, if you're swapping between Windows and Mac OS, you are going to be spending money at some point on software. Yeah, it's, just, it's inescapable, really. Yeah. There's... There's always something you can do to find a fix for the software that you love that you're potentially leaving behind. And I think more and more software devs are trying to be cross-platform, aren't they? Uh, oh, even yeah, yeah. even with Linux. Um, but there's always going to be one or two pain points, if you will. But you can always work around them as well, like this. You know, there's lots of different fantastic free software suites. So I'd throw a Caligra suite in there as well if... Um, for another alternative to Microsoft Office for, for Mac. It's got some very okay. good options in there. Okay, good call, good call. Big thanks to Gavin Phillips there. And we're going to move on to the next topic in this week's really useful podcast, Best of Special. James Frew and I discuss the best old PC games that are still worth playing. This is for those of you who've ever played PC games in the past and have felt... An affinity with those titles that maybe you think, oh, I really fancy that game, but oh, I don't think it's going to work on Windows 10. Uh, we've, um, well, it was actually uh, one of the really useful podcast hosts, Gavin Phillips, who's compiled a list of 10 old PC games that are still worth playing and can still be played today. There's uh, some good titles in there. Theme Hospital, Baldur's Gate 2. OpenTTD, which is the uh, open source port of Transport Tycoon Deluxe from, uh, is that a 90s game, Deluxe? I have absolutely no idea. To be honest, I've never really been a big gamer, so a lot of these are lost to me. Okay, there's Fallout 2, there's Half-Life, which is, you know, it's in its own world, is kind of legendary. There's Mm. Thief, which is a game which I've spent a lot of time playing back in the day. It's kind of a a, uh, sneaking around game. There's Starcraft. There's Quake, which is one of the legendary uh, first-person shooters, multiplayer games of all time. Grim Fandango, System Shock 2. These are all great games, and they're all available on Steam or goodoldgames.com, or they've been open-sourced and they're actually free. Which is quite impressive, really. It is, isn't it? It gives it gives games an extra lifespan yeah. way after you know their, their profitable phase has ended. Because... Uh... I was actually in this category of like looking back at old games that I love to play. So I've always loved Crash Bandicoot, the original PlayStation series. Yeah. And 
I was actually playing those, like the old games. Like I downloaded some of them from the PlayStation Store. I still had a PS3 that was compatible with discs, you know, the old discs. So I'd play the old games. So when they announced the remasters a couple of years ago, I was like, I am totally on that. And I spent another yeah. like $40 or whatever it was. So there's a market for um for old games and the oh, nostalgic feeling. Yeah. 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 I, um, I was slightly <laughs> bewildered by the arrival of sort of HD remasters of old games mm. initially. But having tried a few now, uh, they're fantastic. There's, I mean, there's, there's a, and uh, I don't want to call it amateur because it's absolutely not amateur. Uh, there's a community-driven project that remasters, rebuilds Half-Life in the Half-Life 2 engine. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, there's Amiga games that have been remastered and released on Android and iOS. There's there's so many, and you know that you you're not losing that's kind of um 16 bit atmosphere it's just a bit polished for the hd yeah. displays but uh yeah it's um you know i was watching uh the news last week and they were displaying the um baftas news from the mm-hmm. baftas uh video games awards and you know the video game industry is sort of like twice as big as the movie industry yeah it's enormous isn't it yeah it's, it's absolutely huge so it's great that these these kind of i suppose these are the you know, these older games, these are kind of the the the, the, the silent movie era. Yeah, for, like the classic, classic era. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, and yeah, you can still play them and they're still great. Just like many of the silent movies and classic era of Hollywood are still great. Mm. So yeah, 10 games. Um, for PC, this is just PC that's still worth playing. That you can get either free because they're open source or you can get them still for a small fee on um, goodoldgames.com or Steam, which are both online distri- uh, digital distribution systems. Um, a quick tip if you do have these old games in the original form, they probably won't work on Windows 10 anyway. Uh, if you are cap- handy, you know, if you feel capable of sit- setting up a virtual machine, you'll probably get them to install in a virtual machine. But if you're going to get them from uh, GOG, goodoldgames.com or Origin or Steam, then they will come compatible to run on Windows 10. Yeah. And we'll take a moment from our usual podcast proceedings to just remind you that the really useful podcast can be found pretty much anywhere you find podcasts. So we're on Apple Podcasts, we're on Spotify, we're on Google Podcasts. We're hosted at Transistor.fm, so you can find us there as well. We're also on YouTube, and of course on makeuseof.com now however you subscribe to the really useful podcast and listen to us it would be amazing if you could take a moment to leave us a review on apple podcasts that will help us to find new listeners and take our podcast to ever greater heights you'll find the link to our apple podcast page in the show notes thanks a lot Okay, so we're over halfway through our best of the really useful podcast this week. And now, Ian Buckley and I discuss what is a Raspberry Pi. You've heard of the little computer. You maybe think you might want one, but you're not 100% certain what it is. We've got all the answers for you in this next chat. We're going to look at a very specific topic 
in the world of technology. Uh, it's something that's been around since 2012. Um, upwards of 15 million devices have been shipped. It's probably a good 5 million more than that by now. Um, it's the Raspberry Pi. This is a little device which is about the size of a credit card. It's a computer that you can use as a desktop computer, as I found out last week. I used it daily as a desktop, and it's a $35 PC, basically, because it, it did everything that I asked of it. Um, it can be used for hobbyist um, purposes. It can be used to develop your own low-budget space program. You can even use Raspberry Pi as a media center or for playing retro games. And the possibilities with this tiny computer are endless and it's so cheap. It's really relatively simple to set up. Um, but both Ian and myself have spent a lot of time with the Raspberry Pi, haven't we, Ian? Yeah, we have, yeah. Um, and the beauty of it is, um, is uh, we're both people that use the Raspberry Pi a lot. We've both written a lot about it. But there's a lot of, it's such an extensible little board that there's a lot of things that I would probably actually go to Christian to ask about because I don't really know so much about like to do with media centers and all that and i'm sure there's a handful of things when it comes to the diy side of it you'd probably come to me about because i'm Certainly. more likely to be seen with a soldering iron in my hand than most other things um they're they're amazing little things i uh, uh yeah it was kind of odd really when i first heard about them my initial reaction was probably like other people just kind of like well what's what's the point in that it's cool to have a yeah. tiny computer and then yeah i got one and i fell in love immediately i've got about six now <laughs> yeah i've collected a few over the years myself and i think the most amazing thing about it is that, yeah, it's $35, but there's also, yeah. that's just the standard version. There's actually a cheaper version, the Raspberry Pi Zero. Um, yeah. $35 is the, the standard B-board, um, which is the size of a credit card. The Raspberry Pi Zero, when it was first released, was available for, um, it was about £10 in the UK. It came free yeah. on the front cover. On the front cover of a magazine, yeah, uh, called called Magpie, which is published by the Raspberry Pi guys. Um, the Raspberry Pi Zero itself. I'm just going to double check what the current price is because uh, it's half the size. Uh, now here in the UK, you will be looking at four pounds sixty-five for Raspberry Pi Zero, which is incredible considering yeah. you can yeah you can run an operating system on that thing. Isn't you that, can do isn't that mad. Yeah, you can do most of the things you can do on a standard Raspberry Pi with yeah. that, which is wow. absolutely crazy, yeah. <laughs> now, um, one of the main uh, driving f forces for the Raspberry Pi's development was uh, to create an educational device. Mm. Uh, now, last, uh, about a fortnight ago, um, I was reviewing for makeuseof.com a device called the Piper Computer Kit. Mm. Now, that features a standard Raspberry Pi um, Model 3, uh, not the B+, plus, just the 3B. And it comes with a display. It comes with uh, a breadboard. It comes with LEDs and uh, buzzers and switches and uh, sort of uh, two-state switches. And it's basically for children. It comes with a Minecraft, a special version of Minecraft, uh, which is basically mm. um teaches the child how to connect things up uh teaches the child electronics and it, it's a fantastic piece of uh and it comes in a wooden box as well that you have to build oh no that's nice i didn't know yeah. that <laughs> yeah 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 so yeah the whole thing's really cool yeah. and uh, i think the possibilities for the pie render so what we're going to do in this week's podcast 
uh, is look at a handful of things that you can do with the Raspberry Pi. And, you know, this is the tech podcast for technophobes. And we're not going to go deep, complicated with this. We're just going to give you a demonstration, a verbal demonstration of what is possible with this little computer. And you'll find that it's not that much different to what you can do with a standard computer, where everything's just scaled down. Mm. Uh, so we're going to kick off with, uh, I think, the basics, which is installing the, an operating system on the Raspberry Pi. Because with a PC, you probably come with the Raspberry with the operating system pre-installed or with the laptop comes pre-installed. With the Raspberry Pi, you have to install it yourself on the SD card. Mm. Now, this is something that makes people run a mile. Fortunately, there's a really way to, really easy way to do this, which is with a tool called Etcher, which you can get from etcher.io. And as ever, um, with the really useful podcast, uh, all the information that you need will be found in the show notes. Uh, now, etcher.io is basically you connect... You download the operating system, you connect your SD card to your computer via card reader, you launch etcher.io, and everything else is self-explanatory. You select the operating system that you've downloaded from maybe from the uh, raspberrypi.org website, and then you burn it to the SD card. It is that simple. Yeah, Etcher is, um, Etcher is lovely in that it does... Um... It, it kind of fits nicely with the tone of this podcast in general, because uh, there are lots of pieces of software that can do exactly what Etcher does. But Etcher is very simple. If I remember correctly, um, it has three buttons. One is uh, enter operating system and two is choose drive and three is go. Um, and so really the only way that you could muck it up is if you chose the wrong drive to put your operating system on. And that's something that they very, uh, uh, if I remember again correctly, they uh, say, are you absolutely sure this is the right drive? Check the size, all this kind of stuff. Um, and uh, it's the, the other thing I noticed, and I think this uh, this is kind of a, a, an odd thing, but I um, I used to have to put operating systems on, on the Pi quite frequently because I'd usually start with a fresh one when I made a tutorial. And um, when I started using Etcher, I also bought a dedicated little SD card reader, USB 3, that would click, uh, attach to my computer. And the speed that you can put an operating system onto a card with one of those is phenomenal. I've mm -hmm. been using something, a really old one, for a while. Um, and uh, that's sort of a, a, a slight tip, which is those those USB 3 SD card readers that you can get for just a few dollars. Um, they're really, they really make a difference if you've been using oh. an old piece of hardware or something. Um, good tip, good tip. Yeah. Um, so yeah, and it's basically you, you're probably going to have the Raspberry Pi set up in a few minutes. Now you'll probably need a keyboard to use with it and a display. There yes. are other things that you can do. You can connect to it remotely, and that's more of an advanced thing. I mean, I'm at the moment I'm uh, working on an article, um, an update to an older article on how to use a Raspberry Pi as a web server. Um, Indeed. Again, credit card size computer, low power can be used as a web server. Yes. And it, and it costs thirty-five dollars. <laughs> It's amazing, isn't it? It is amazing. It's it's still <laughs> it's still amazing, you know, seven years on. Uh, now, you'll probably find that there's a lot of articles on makeuseof.com about the Raspberry Pi. I have written over 100. Yeah, I don't think I'm quite up there yet, but I've certainly written a good handful. I was just yeah. just having a, a kind of sift through before we did the uh, uh, before we started the recording. And uh, I think out of all of my tutorial articles, about a good half of them are um, are Pi, uh, hmm. and the other half obviously are Arduino. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I I'm, and I don't feel like I've scratched the surface. There's so much more I could write about. Same here. Yeah. yeah. Totally. Totally. So 
we're going to have a look at some things that have been published recently about the Raspberry Pi at makeuseof.com. And the first one is probably should. Yeah, we'll go with that one. It demonstrates how you can record and stream live TV with this tiny computer. Yes. Uh, now, you will need a external additional device connected to it. Um, it is a, 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 a tuner for, for uh, receiving uh, signals over the area. It's what's called a hat, and it sits atop the Raspberry Pi's uh, GPIO and can be attached to the Pi. And then you connect your usual um, TV aerial to that. And then the software called TV Head End, which you can use with the tuner to um, watch TV on the mm. pie now the fact that it has expansions is cool enough and there's so many different types of hats for the raspberry pi but the fact you can actually use it for tv yeah that's kind of amazing isn't it yeah. <laughs> most things these days are kind of how to how to stream how to set up uh, media servers and uh, uh, as with all of those things i think um there, there can be issues with locality and there can also be issues with legality whereas tv is yeah. relatively simple um yeah and uh, uh, yeah, that's it's a really nice uh, it's a really nice little thing the uh, the hat itself because it means also that technically anything that uses that kind of aerial can be used. So um, even your old video player, if you wanted to, if you wanted to record your digitize your old videos, you could use this exact same piece of kit. Yeah, um, which is a nice kind of side effect to uh, yeah. to, to doing it. It's it's a, it's a great thing. And just to clarify, the GPIO that I referred to earlier, that's a collection of pins along the side of the Raspberry Pi, um, and various things can connect to it. You can connect anything to that, really, uh, any device mm. you can uh, run with Linux, you can probably connect to that. And this can also be used, uh, as I mentioned earlier, the, um, the, the the Piper computer kit, the GPIO pins are used for um, the buzzers and connecting to the breadboard, uh, creating basic circuits. And, uh, oh, you should have seen the look on my little boy's face when he made put two wires together and made a noise in the game. Oh, it's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's, oh, I still get that feeling and I'm very, very much looking forward to Elliot being old enough to, uh, to do that with him. Yeah. Totally. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's a fantastic feeling, isn't it? Um, it is. It is. I, I would this, say this. Yeah, go on. Sorry, go on. Yeah. Well, this, one thing I was just simply going to say is this article uh, kind of highlights what we were saying before. I know we're probably going to come on to this, so I don't want to speak about it too much. But uh, as you mentioned at the start, the Pi can be used as a general media server. You could technically replace, you know, your, your set-top box or, or whatever in your living room with a Pi. And this is the bit that really closes the circle to me, is that, you, you know, we've had ways you can install Plex servers on a Pi. You can use it as your own version of Netflix. Being able to also put, you know, live television into that too really does get it up to the point where if you wanted to, if you were DIY minded enough, you could more or less replace your television service and build your own one from scratch using a computer yeah. that costs, you know, 35 quid. It's amazing. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I've build. previously looked into ways of, um, as you say, Plex, um, running Netflix and Amazon Prime on the Raspberry Pi. So, yeah, yeah. I would go along with all of that. What I wanted to say about this particular article, how to record mm. and stream live, live TV with the Raspberry Pi, is that Ben's done it inside a thousand words. Yeah. It's a five minute read. It's, you know, it can, Raspberry Pi stuff can get in depth and absolutely very can quickly. take a long time. This is a five minute read mm. and all the steps that you need, all the commands that you need and all the software that you need are included in yep. this article. It's a superb job and it just shows you how simple uh, things can be with the Pi. Yeah. We're going to move on. Thanks to Ian Bookley for joining me at 
and talking about the Raspberry Pi. And we will move on to our final best of the really useful podcast chat this week, in which Ben Stegner and myself discuss Skype. Now here's a little fact for you, dear listener. When we record the really useful podcast, in pretty much every case, apart from the shows that I've largely hosted myself, the show has been recorded over Skype. It's then edited in Audacity, but the, uh, the, the show is conducted over Skype. We use the built-in Skype recorder. Uh, occasionally, we use secondary recording tools at the same time. And yeah, we do it all on Skype. Sometimes Skype isn't working, whether you're working from home or you just like to chat with people or chatting is your business. Uh, Skype not working can lead to quite a few problems. So what can we do, Ben, when Skype isn't working? Yeah, so I, in light of everything with uh, people working from home, I, I looked at some of the, the tips to kind of walk through when Skype isn't working too well. Um, one of the first things that I always recommend is checking the Skype heartbeat page. Um, if you didn't know, just in general, uh, most services, um, most companies, when they provide online services, they keep a page where you can check the status of what's going on. Um, so if you ever have a problem with anything, YouTube, Apple, anything like that, you can find, probably find a status page that will tell you if there's a known issue. So that's a great first thing to check. So if there's some global problem, you know, that's not just you. Mm-hmm. Um, after that, the best place to go is to um, visit Skype's audio and video settings. Um, so if you're using the desktop Windows 10 version of Skype, the app version, um, if you click on the three dots at the top left and choose settings, that's where you'll find all of Skype's options. And then audio and video um, is where you'll find all the uh, the tools to change your input and output options. Um, usually when Skype isn't, you know, you can't hear yourself, um, the other person can't see you, any problem like that, um, it's good to go in there and make sure that you have the right webcam selected and that your mic's not muted and all that because if you have a lot of different devices attached to your computer, uh, a lot of the time that can kind of get screwed up and it's not using the right device by default um, and things like that. And then I also looked in the article about troubleshooting your audio hardware. So you might have a bad cable on your headphones or something like that. So that's good to review. Um, and there's also Windows settings to review, so maybe Windows isn't detecting your microphone correctly or you have it turned down really low or something like that. But a lot of the time, a Skype problem is usually related to um, a mis- misaligned setting, so looking through those and knowing what to look for there is, is the most important. And, of course, there's more tips in the article, but that's a quick summary. Yeah, good tips. I didn't know about Skype heartbeat, so that's really cool to see. You know about the test call feature too, right? That's another important one. Yeah, I use that almost okay. weekly. <laughs> yeah, that lets you if you have, if you haven't heard of it, uh, listeners, that lets you call a test service that plays plays a few sentences so you can make sure that your headphones are working correctly, and then it asks you to say a sentence and then it'll play it back to you, so that way you know that it, your mic is working. So that's just a quick way to test that everything's okay without having to call a friend and run through that. So anyone can call that test service on Skype uh, easily. So, that's it. Yes, it has been a slightly different, really useful podcast, but we've got 30 months worth of tips and tricks to bring to you. Some shows have been more popular than others. So, you know, we thought maybe it's best to revive interest in a few of those great tips and tricks and to give you the chance to revisit them. Now, all of our shows are available to listen to on Apple Podcasts and wherever you get your podcasts from, as you'll have heard midway through the show. So you can just dip in and out as you please to find the answers to the questions that you need. And of course, everything else that you probably need an answer to 
is at makeuseof.com. We'll be back with another really useful podcast for you soon. Until then, take care. It's goodbye from us. Mm-hmm.